Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Be sure to visit robertjmorgan.com where you'll find Rob's blog posts, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Hello, everyone, and today we're getting back into our studies of this little epistle near the end of the New Testament called 1 John. And today we're coming to a very difficult and perplexing passage. Whenever we come to a passage like this, we can always be sure there is a rich blessing in it. You don't want to skip over difficult passages in the Bible because they can contain the richest blessings. The Lord simply wants to figure out what He wants to tell us, and we'll try to do that today with 1 John chapter 3, verses 3 through 10. So stay tuned for Bible study. But first, as we enter 2024, we're all apprehensive about what lies ahead. We have a presidential election, and the congressional balance of power is in play. We have wars going on in Israel and Ukraine and in about 30 other places on Earth. China is threatening Taiwan, and every world crisis creates personal problems for us in an everyday way. What is the world coming to? Well, we need to understand the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And I think that I can help you with that if you'll check out my book, The 50 Final Events in World History. I go through the book of Revelation verse by verse to show you that it's not as difficult as you think. You can understand this book, and in fact, it is vital to do so. So check out The 50 Final Events in World History. Get a copy for yourself, for a friend, and recommend it to your Bible study group. Now, let's plunge into one of the most difficult passages in the writings of the Apostle John. I'm going to read it. You can follow along if you have a Bible nearby in 1 John chapter 3, and I'll begin with verse 3 and read through verse 11. The question here is, is John telling us that we can go through the day or the week or the month or the year without sinning at all? Is it possible to arrive at sinless perfectionism? Well, let's begin here with verse 3 as we, uh, we just open our Bibles right up to John 3, 3. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil." because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, 
because God's seed remains in them, they cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Now, this passage presents a real interpretive challenge. What in the world is John talking about here? Well, I want to go back and provide some context and review for you what John has already said in his gospel, or rather in this epistle. In chapter 1, John told us in verses 8 through 10 that even though we are born-again followers of Jesus, we still have to grapple with the frustration of sin in our lives. We've been saved from the penalty of sin, but not necessarily from its presence. And so he said in chapter 1, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, he is speaking here to Christian people. He said, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. And then in chapter 2, he said in verse 1, My dear children, I write this so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. But now in chapter 3, it almost seems as though John is telling us that, in fact, if we belong to Christ, we cannot and will not sin. He said, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. The one who continues to sin has neither seen him or known him. And in verse 9, he said again, No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. So it sounds like he is contradicting himself. Here he is saying that if you have been born again, you cannot go on sinning. But earlier, he said that as Christians, if we sin, we confess our sins, we have an advocate with the Father. So how does all of this come together? How do we solve this riddle? Well, the first thing to realize is that this is Scripture, like all Scripture in our Bible that has been inspired by the Holy Spirit. And also, the the Apostle John was an intelligent, logical man. So we can operate on the assumption that this is an apparent contradiction, not a real one. When we realize what John is really telling us, the difficulty will be resolved and we will be left with a deeper understanding of the ways of God and the depth of the Christian experience. So with that in mind, let's just go through the passage, John, 1 John 3, verses 3 through 10, and ask the Lord to help us to grasp its meaning and its application in our lives. So verse 3 says, it begins by saying, All who have this hope, referring to the coming of Christ, all who have this hope within themselves purify themselves just as he is pure. His talking about the certain and sure expectation of the return of Christ, the resurrection and the glorification of the body, the life that we will enjoy forever in heaven. John said, when he comes again, we will see him, we will be like him. So he is saying, if you are really focused on the excitement of our Lord's return, 
you will continue fighting sin in your life and become more and more like He is, blameless and holy. All who have this hope in Him purify themselves. They continue to purify themselves just as He is pure. That obviously means that if we are living honestly, we admit that there are areas that we need to purify. We have some thoughts and habits that need to be corrected. Even though we are Christians, we are not perfect, but we are working on growing better and stronger every day. We are being purified by His blood, but we are purifying ourselves by adopting what we need to do in the process of sanctification to grow in Christ. Sometimes when I travel, I let various grandchildren stay at my house. A time or two, I've come home and the house was a wreck. I don't want to walk into my house, especially after an exhausting trip, and find it a wreck. I want everything to be in its place so that I can walk into a clean house. I've had to help my grandchildren learn that when they are anticipating my return, they need to straighten things up and wash the dishes and vacuum the floors and make the beds. And in the same way, John is saying, if we are truly anticipating our Lord's return at any time, we will be conscious of holiness and mindful of straightening ourselves up day by day and purifying ourselves for His return. So that is the way the whole paragraph begins. All who have this hope in Him purify themselves just as He is pure. And then he goes on in verse 4, and he defines sin. He says, anyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. That's an incredible definition of sin. Let me explain it this way. Left to ourselves, if there was no information from God or about God, we would be unable to define right from wrong. For example, today, everywhere around us, some people say that it's wrong to engage in sexual activity apart from a covenant marriage between one man and one woman, but others vehemently disagree with that. They think, in fact, that it's wrong to maintain that position, that all kinds of marital equations are all right so long as the people involved love each other, as they say. So how do you know what is right and what is wrong when it comes to sex, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to any area you can imagine? If we didn't have any information from God or about God, we would be left to our own opinions. Our only infallible standard is the Word of God. Since God is holy and He is the righteous Creator, anything that violates His character and His holy nature is evil. And He has given us a book of laws and rules and commands and standards that reflect that in our human experience and that help us to know what is right and what is wrong. When we violate what God has said in His Word, that is wrong and that is sin. So sin is whatever violates the character of God as codified in His Word. So he says here, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. We have all sinned and fallen short of God's perfections and His character and His glory, which means that we are separated from Him by our sins. This is literally the greatest dilemma in the universe. What do we do about it? We cannot do anything about it, but God can. So look at verse 5, the next verse. But you know that He appeared 
so that he might take away our sin. Now there you have the entire message of the gospel in one sentence. There are two parts to it. First, he appeared. God himself appeared on earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And John actually began his epistle on this note. He said, the life appeared, and we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. This is what we call the incarnation, God coming into humanity through the conception and birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He appeared but why? Well, the second part of the phrase says, to take away our sins. This morning, the garbage truck came by my house, and I had already rolled the garbage out to the curb, and the truck came along, and it dumped it into the back of, my, uh, back of that vehicle, that big truck that comes by, and took it away. And that trash is gone. It is not coming back. It is out of my house. It is out of my life. It doesn't matter if it was old vegetables or smelly food out of the refrigerator or uh, trash that had just been thrown away at Christmas time as everybody crumpled up their boxes, but it was all gone and it's not coming back. That is what Jesus Christ does with all of your sin and shame and guilt and mine. And that's why we should never look back and flog ourselves for the stupid or hurtful things that we've done, not if we have been cleansed and forgiven by the shed blood of Christ because he appeared to take away our sin. Now, all of that we can follow relatively well, but now we come to the perplexing verse number six. Here is what it says. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Now, do you ever keep on sinning? Do you continue to sin? Well, what does this verse really mean? We know based on what I quoted earlier in chapters 1 and 2, as well as what we read in the rest of the Bible, that John was not telling us that Christians cannot sin. He is not teaching Christian perfectionism, that we can come to the point in this life in which we are perfect and sinless. We know, not, we, we know that not from this verse, but from the other verses that he has given us and from all of the other verses of the Bible. Nothing in the New Testament that I can find teaches sinless perfectionism in this life. We'll be perfect and sinless in heaven, but now in this life, we do not have the option of sinless perfectionism. So then, what does John really mean? The word live here is that traditional word abide. In fact, I prefer the older translations for this part of John because he uses this word abide again and again, but the newer translations don't put it that way. But here's what this verse is saying. No one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning. The word sin is the word that means to miss the mark, to engage in wrongdoing. So the verse can say, no one who is abiding in Christ keeps on missing the mark and engaging in wrongdoing. In other words, sin can never come out of the experience of abiding in Christ. When we abide in Christ, he is our everything. We are connected to him in unbroken fellowship. If we are fully abiding in him, we are not at that moment grieving the Holy Spirit. We are not at that moment quenching the Holy Spirit. We are one with him. 
when we sin, it is an erosion of that relationship. It doesn't mean that we have lost our salvation, but we have lost a bit of our fellowship with Him, and in that sinful area of life, we are not, at that moment, fully abiding in Him. In other words, when we commit a sin, it is a splinter in our experience of abiding in Christ. If you have a sinful habit in your life, it does not come from your experience of abiding in Christ. It must have another source. Where do these sinful lapses come from? Well, verse 7 and 8 tell us, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The devil is not only trying to keep sinful people from coming to Christ, he is also trying to create little hairline fractures in our abiding relationship with Jesus. It's very interesting to study what John has to say about the devil. Let's make a little list from this passage, and then I'll add a couple of more items from elsewhere in 1 John and from John's gospel. But here he says the devil has been sinning from the beginning. That is, he has been breaking the law and operating diametrically opposite to the righteous character of God from the very beginning. And the devil is also known as the evil one. Down in verse 12, John wrote, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. He also called the devil the one who is in this world. But he is no match for Jesus Christ who lives within us. First John 4, 4 says, Dear children, you are from God and have overcome them, because greater is the one who is in you than the one who is in the world, referring to the devil. And then in 1 John 5, 18, we know that anyone who is born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. The devil, however, is in control of this entire world system. The very next verse, 1 John 5, 19, says, We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Backing up to chapter 2, we're told in verses 13 and 14 that through Jesus Christ we have overcome the evil one. And then in his gospel, in John chapter 8, verse 44, John quotes Jesus as saying this to his enemy. You belong to your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. There is a very interesting phrase there that helps us. I think we can understand this passage in 1 John 3 by looking at it. Jesus said, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. In other words, those who belong to the devil have a nature within them that wants to carry out his desires. That does not mean that they might not occasionally do a good deed, but overall their nature is one of wanting to carry out all the desires of the devil. In the same way, those who are abiding in Christ have a nature within them that wants to carry out the desires of Christ. That doesn't mean that we might not occasionally do something wrong, but overall our nature is one of wanting to carry out the desires of Christ. 
I want to suggest to you that this is the essence of what John is saying in 1 John chapter 3. He cannot be talking about sinless perfection in this life because he has already told us what to do as Christians when we sin. He talked about that in chapters 1 and 2. But I think here in chapter 3 he is saying, this is my paraphrase or my explanation of it, the one who abides in Christ has a nature that wants to please Jesus all the time. If you don't have that nature within you, then it's a sign you are not a Christian. When we abide in Christ, we simply want to please Him with all we do, with all we say, with all we are. The one who abides in the devil has a nature that wants to please the devil all the time. John is not telling us that in Christ we cannot sin. He is telling us that when we abide in Christ, it is no longer in our nature to sin. We become more and more like Jesus. When we do sin, we confess it and we have an advocate with the Father. But the more we abide in Christ, the more we want to live in a way that pleases Him. Now let's go on to the last part of the passage here, verse number 8. It says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. This really goes back to the first announcement of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, when the Lord said to Satan that one day the seed of woman, a Messiah, would appear to crush the serpent's head. And Hebrews 2.14 says the same thing, telling us that by his death, Jesus Christ broke the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Revelation 20.10 says about the devil and his final destination, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur forever and ever. And so the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work in history, but also in our lives, so that we will sin less and less. We have lost the essence of the nature to sin because we have turned to Jesus Christ and He has given us a new nature. And as we abide in Christ, it is in our nature to please Him. So we can wrap up our verses of 9 and 10 with this final segment. He says, No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. Now, I want to repeat that. It's so dramatic. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. We have to interpret this in the light of what we have already seen and what I've already said. John is not telling us that when we receive Christ as Savior, we will never fall or tumble into another sin. He is telling us that when we are born again and abiding in Christ, we have a new nature, and that new nature wants to please the Lord. If we do not have that nature, we are not born again. But I cannot pass over the most dramatic word in this sentence, one that is shocking to theologians and to careful Bible students. There is nothing else in the Bible like it. One commentator called it a very daring metaphor. Look at verse 9 again. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. The Greek word seed here is the word semen. Most commentators believe John is using this remarkable metaphor to describe the Holy Spirit 
who applies the blood of Jesus Christ to our hearts, causes us to be born again, and then remains within us, living within us, which is how we abide in Christ. Anyone who's undergone this remarkable experience will have a desire to please the Lord. We may sin, but we will be grieved at the sinful tendencies in our lives and will seek to overcome them for His glory. So this is what I believe John is saying here. It is admittedly a very difficult passage. It could be interpreted, if you took it out of its context, to be referring to sinless perfectionism, but within the totality of the context of John and the rest of the Scripture, and knowing that John was not a man to contradict himself, then here is what I think this passage is saying. I'll summarize it for you. Having admitted that Christians do sin and have to confess their sins, he is not about to teach us that we are sinlessly perfect. He is telling us that when we are born again of God's seed, when the Holy Spirit has wrought this incredible transformation, when we are abiding in Christ, we have a new nature that wants to please the Lord, and that grows in holiness. If we do not have that, we should question our salvation. On the other hand, the people of this world have a nature that wants to sin. They are living out the desires of their father, the devil. One of the ways we know that we are saved is that within us there is a desire to live as we should, to live biblically, to live with growing personal holiness until we see Christ face to face, and then we will be as He is. We shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Well, we'll pick up our study of 1 John at this point next time. If you want to review this particular lesson in print, then go to my website. In a few days, it will be posted there and you can review the outline and a summary of this transcript, and maybe that will help reinforce the lessons in your mind. Thank you for digging into the riches of the Bible with me. This episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company Clearly Media, and by MP Seminars, which for three decades has been training pastors, scholars, and Bible students in the use of Logos biblical software. Audio engineering and production is by Jared Brummett. Editorial supervision by Sherry Anderson. And Luke Tyler takes each of these episodes, condenses them, adds an opening outline, and posts them as blogs at robertjmorgan.com, where you can also find information about my book concerning Revelation, the 50 final events in world history. Music is by Jordan Davis. Thank you so much for tuning in, and may God be with you until we meet again.